Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome, everyone. You're listening to another episode of New Books in Buddhist Studies on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Trevor McManus, and Dr. Jean Park will be joining me. She's director of the Asian Studies Program and a professor of philosophy and religion at American University. Today, we'll be discussing her work. Women and Buddhist Philosophy, Engaging Zen Master Kim Yir Yup, published by University of Hawaii in 2017. Welcome to the show, Dr. Park. Uh, hi, Trevor. Thank you for having me here. So, yeah, thanks for being here. We're really glad to have this opportunity to talk about your book. I was wondering if we can start the interview by having you introduce yourself. Uh, well, yes, uh, I'm Shin Park, as you just said. I, I'm a professor of philosophy and religion at American University in Washington, D.C. Uh, and basically, my uh, specialty are Buddhist philosophy, especially Korean Buddhist philosophy and Buddhism and uh, modern East Asian philosophy and also East-West comparative philosophy. And in that context, I'm also very much interested in gender and uh, some social and political dimensions of Buddhism and philosophy. Uh, so you want me to tell the audience a little bit about myself, the bio, where I grew up and things like that? Yes, please. Okay, so uh, I was educated. That would be nice. <laughs> Good. I was educated both in Korea and the United States. So I was educated up to my first master's degree in uh, Korea, and then I came to the U.S. Uh, to continue my study. So I did my second master and my Ph.D. here in the United States, and I'm still here. Um, so I, uh, I studied a variety of different fields. They are all related eventually in my scholarship, but I studied uh, literature and I studied philosophy, and I also studied some religion and some social kind of political theory. So when I studied philosophy in Korea, as usually the case at that time in Korea, and still perhaps philosophy meant usually Western philosophy. So I studied a lot of Western philosophy, and I also read by myself a lot of Western philosophy books, but then also a lot of literature. But then I, I was not too happy with the, the Western philosophy I was reading at the time. And I was looking for something different. And at a certain point, I really encountered this Asian philosophy, especially Buddhist philosophy. And I thought that that's a, a nice uh, kind of change in our uh, way of thinking. But then uh, in Korea, uh, there was no, actually, were not many Asian philosophy courses. Uh, so uh, I think I studied uh, mostly 
by myself, Buddhist philosophy. And uh, it was actually not until when I uh, did my second master's here in the United States, I began to look at philosophy and Asian philosophy, including Buddhism, from a very different perspective. There was uh, in a course, uh, I think, titled uh, uh, Postmodernism and Deconstruction. In that course, I read a number of uh, uh, continental philosophers in the field of postmodernism and deconstruction. And when I first read Jacques Derrida's uh, first book of grammatology, I was really shocked because it was so much related to Buddhism. Obviously, Jacques Derrida didn't know anything about Buddhism. And then when we read that book, uh, the, my classmates were screaming, saying that I have no ideas what is happening in the, in, in the book, but I thought that, wow, this is totally Buddhism. So that was uh, my beginning of uh, my interest in uh, Buddhism and deconstruction, so that kind of making a connection between East and West. And also my interest, my kind of uh, educational background, that uh, I was educated both uh, Korea and the West, and I experienced uh, culture both in uh, Asia and in the United States, made me think a lot about this kind of differences and similarities and so on and so forth between these two different cultures. And that eventually led to uh, my long-time interest in East-West comparative philosophy, uh, more specifically Buddhism and the content of philosophy. So that was my actually doctoral dissertation, Buddhism and postmodernism. But at the time, I studied uh, pre-modern Korean Buddhism, uh, Zen Buddhism, uh, studied by Bojo Jinul in Korea about 13th century. So I wrote a dissertation on Zen Buddhism of Bojo Jinul of 13th century Korea and about the 20th century continental philosophy. And after I finished my dissertation, I thought that, well, this is a little bit strange, right? It's a pre-modern Buddhism compared with the contemporary Western philosophy. And I thought that I should, in a way, that uh, close the gap a little bit. So I began to study modern Korean Buddhism. And also, as you can perhaps imagine, when I studied uh, Buddhism or philosophy, there were no women in there. Perhaps the only women thinkers I studied was perhaps Simone de Beauvoir and Julia Kristeva. But that was it, right? So I began to think that what happened to women in Buddhism? What, what happened to women in Korean Buddhism? So I began to do a research on the women, women Buddhist in modern Korea. And eventually, I came across with this figure, Kim Il-ryuk. And the first, I had only like a five or seven page short uh, uh, newspaper, collection of newspaper article on her. And I thought that she's very interesting. So I began to collect uh, materials going through the, uh, the used bookstores in Korea and going through the libraries and collected materials. And it turned out that she was a real kind of very interesting figure. And only later, when I began to write a book on her, I learned that uh, she was actually a celebrity figure in my parents' generation. For example, my mother or my parents' generation all know her very well, not because they are Buddhist scholar, but uh, Gimira was a certain kind of a, a celebrity figure as a, a female 
uh, not only Buddhist but activist writer. So I began to write a book on her, and in this book, I also put together some of the main issues I've been thinking about as I studied both the, uh, Asian philosophy, Buddhism, and Western philosophy in the context of uh, Korean women uh, studying in the West and Korean female scholar who's uh, doing a research and teaching in Western academia. So these are kind of things together are kind of background of this book. That's very interesting. You mentioned Derrida, and I think in the conclusion of your book, you talk about his idea of uh, psyche and biography and how Kim Il-yup had a in her own way, a similar philosophy combining her feminist viewpoints with her Buddhist viewpoints. Can we transition and talk a little bit about Kim Il-yup, her beginning and the historical context in which she was growing up? Oh, sure. So Kim Il-yup was born in northern, northern part of Korea, contemporary North Korea. Uh, 1896, and she passed away in 1971 in in, in South Korea. So uh, she had a very interesting background, and her life itself is really panoramic. So she was born uh, in northern in northern part of Korea, and her parents were very very uh, faithful Christian, and her father was actually Christian pastor. So I think he was the first generation of a Korean Protestant pastor, and he was very, very faithful. And in several places in his in her writing, Kimidov says that her father must be the most faithful Christian in the entire Korea. So she grew up as a very uh, faithful Christian, and when she was like uh, seven, eight years old, she even dreamed of her future as a, as a Christian missionary. And she said, I, when I grew up, I will go to a place like Africa where people do not know about God and I will send a God's message so that I can save them from the fires of hell. But eventually, uh, around the, um, the, during her young adulthood, she began to have a doubt about Christian doctrines. And then eventually she said she lost her faith. And she I mean, this doubt about uh, Christian doctrines are those things I think any Christian, any believers could have. For example, if God created the world, why are there so many bad things in the world? Uh, if there are clear heaven and hell, and suppose I'm in heaven and my family members are in the hell, can I be still happy in heaven? These kind of questions really bother the Gimidev. And but then his father, being a such a kind of faithful uh, evangelical Christian, when he when she tried to ask any questions, he stopped her and told her, "Well, you don't ask questions about God. That's uh, you do that because your faith is not strong enough. Pray. That is the answer." And this kind of uh, reaction to Europe's doubt actually backfired and eventually gave me the blows to her uh, faith in Christianity. 
And then for in in her twenties, she uh, she became a very active uh, feminist in as a first generation Korean feminist, demanding gender equality in a very much patriarchal Confucian Korean society. So he was educated uh, all the way up to uh, nowadays college, right? Iwa Hakdang, contemporary Iwa Women's University. And she also went to Japan, like many Korean intellectuals at the time, and studied there. And obviously, she was very much influenced by the women's movement in Japan. And when she came back to Korea, she created this uh, women's organization uh, and the journal called uh, New Women. So this was the kind of uh, the, the space in which Kim Media can uh, express her ideas and publish her works. And she became a really celebrated figure at the forefront of women's liberation. But eventually, she, it looks like she felt that perhaps a social change might not be sufficient for her to attain whatever she might have wanted. So she slowly changes from a social activist to a religious practitioner. And in 1933, she joined the monastery. And then she remained as a Buddhist nun, very well-known, very influential figure in Korean Buddhist nuns society until she passed away in 1971. So she was, so in a way, she was a Christian, she was a writer, she was a feminist activist, and she was a polemical writer, and she became a Buddhist nun and then published her books about Buddhism. So she had a, a various different kind of faces uh, in her life and was very well known to Korean general public. I see. What were some of the positions that she was expressing when she was writing in this period of her life that some scholars have kind of separated from her monastic period? Oh, that's right. So that's uh, uh, one of the main criticism or evaluation of Kim Mediop's works has been that uh, Kim Mediop's life has uh, two separate phases. In other words, Kim Mediop as a new woman and Kim Mediop as a uh, Gen Master. These are totally two different worlds. We cannot reconcile them. So there was a rupture between Kim Mediop as a new woman and Kim Mediop as a Gen Master. But I challenged that idea in my various publications. And I I'm still think that claiming there is no rupture. I mean, the changes in life happen right as we move on in our life. But deep down in Kim Mediop's life, I think there was only one absolute kind of goal she was trying to attain, and that I define as freedom. She wanted to have freedom, and as a feminist activist, she she wanted to be free from the gender society, and she wanted to be a human being, 
not a woman in a patriarchal Confucian society. But then she realized that, well, just getting over the gender uh, identity is not sufficient. She wanted to have an absolute freedom, which means that you have to really deal with the existential reality of human beings, life and death. And at that point, she moved to a religious worldview offered by Buddhism. So throughout her life, she was searching for freedom. And the first phase as a feminist activist, she tried it by trying to change social norms so that she can be free from the gendered identity. And after that, she moved even further and joined a religious organization, became a Buddhist nun, and she was struggling to find absolute freedom as an individual human being. And being a human being means, obviously, finite being. We are bound by our uh, physical identity, right? Kimiria wanted to go beyond that. Who were some of the figures that sort of drew Kimiria to become interested in Buddhist practice and eventually enter the monastery? Uh, okay, so in the context of Buddhism, I think um, we can say two figures. Uh, before she joined the monastery, there was really a figure who had a great influence in her encounter with Buddhism. And that was a male lay Buddhist monk scholar named Pak Song Uk. And Pak was a very well-known figure at the time. He was the first generation Koreans who studied Western philosophy and he went to Germany to continue his study, and he came back to Korea in 1925. So many intellectuals in Korea during the 1910s, 20s, and 30s, they went to Japan to continue their uh, studies and expand their knowledge. And Baek uh, uh, sung and small number of uh, the Buddhist uh, intellectuals, they went to Europe. Obviously, that had to do with this kind of uh, reality of Korea being a colony of Japan. But that uh, I'm going to just uh, skip that part. But anyway, Baek Sang-wook went to Germany. And I think his uh, understanding of Buddhism in the context of uh, 1920s, 30s uh, Korea was different from those who studied in Japan. Because he studied in Europe, he was very well versed in Western philosophy and the Buddhist scholarship in Europe. And he was really, he opened his eyes about these differences between Buddhist mode of thinking and Western mode of thinking and the Buddhist scholarship in Europe and the Korean Buddhist scholarship in Korea at the time. And with this old analogy, he came to Korea as a celebrity figure when he arrived in, in Korea. It appears on the newspaper, Dr. Baek sung came back to Korea, right? And he delivered lectures in Buddhist monasteries. And Kim Il-yup came to meet him uh, by accident. Because at that time, 1927, Kim il knew nothing about Buddhism, virtually. But she had a connection with a journal called Buddhism. This is a Buddhist journal, obviously. But Kim Il-yup contributed her literary work, 
not Buddhist articles. She contributed her short stories or her essays and poems. And she went to this uh, uh, the company which published the journal. And when he one day when she went to the company to uh, submit her manuscript, she happened to meet the president of that company, who was Baekseongook. And from the very first uh, beginning, they were like a fell in love at the first sight, both of them. So they had a very romantic relationship, but very short period of time. I think it's less than a year. But Baekseongook actually uh, gave Kim Media kind of individual tutoring when they uh, saw each other. Baek Sung-wook told Gimiryeop a lot about Buddhism and Christianity and Buddhism and all these kind of philosophical dimensions of Buddhism. So that has a great influence on, on the kind of Gimiryeop's idea of Buddhism. The other figure who had a great influence on Gimiryeop was Jan Master Mangon, who was Gimiryeop's master. Jan Master Mangon was one of the most important and well-known Jan uh, master in Korea during the first half of the 20th century. And he taught Gimida how to practice uh, Buddhism, uh, which is known as Hwadu meditation. And Hwadu meditation is a form of uh, Buddhist meditation, which was adopted by Bojo Jinu, 13th century. Um, so this is a type of a meditation that you do the meditation holding on to one specific expression. So Hwadu, we kind of translate as a head of speech, literally, which means critical phrase. For example, uh, there are a lot of encounter dialogue in the tradition of Jan Buddhism. So that is a, a dialogue between Jan master and uh, students. And Jan, students ask, what is the Buddha? And Jan Master responds, a tree outside a window. It's a totally kind of, a, from, from our perspective, a nonsense question and answer, right? But in, in, there are a lot of, obviously, scholarship on that. The Hwadu meditation is meditation focusing on this one expression, critical phrase, the tree outside a window. Right? This is a kind of uh, uh, meditation. And Jan Master Mangong virtually kind of helped Gimiryeop set up with this kind of meditation. And when she first uh, wanted to join the monastery, she went to see uh, Jan Master Mangong. And then after certain kind of interview, uh, Mangong told Gimiryeop that, I know you are a very well-known writer in the outside secular world. But if you join the monastery, you may not read, you may not write. Can you do that? I mean, think about this. Kimiryeop was a writer. For a writer, to write is their life, right? But Kimiryeop said yes. So after she joined the monastery, she joined the monastery in 1933. And then the last piece of work published by Kimiryeop appears around 1935. And until 1955, for about two decades, she didn't publish anything to keep the promise uh, to her master 
Mangong. And around 1955, at the time Ida was already around 60 years old, she began to publish again. And the book that I, I translated, the uh, essays by uh, Jan Master Gimiryeop, that was uh, the book published in 1960. So I think that around this time, after 20 years silence, Gimiryeop uh, must have felt that she was now confident that she could publish, but still not being kind of uh, attached to writing or reading or publishing. Obviously, it was a, a, quite a discipline. Yes, I mean, to enter the monastery in general is quite a discipline. Can you speak about uh, the monastery that she entered and perhaps share with our audience a little bit about the culture of Bikunis in South Korea? I think it's something that's overlooked a lot in English scholarship. Right, exactly. So uh, Kim Il-up began to uh, practice meditation around 1928. So he had a relationship with Baek Sung-wook from 1927 up to sometime 1928. So he learned, she learned about the major doctrines about Buddhism from him. And then she began to meditate from 1928. And she uh, moved around different Zen centers and different monasteries in South Korea or now the northern part of Korea. And this also is a very interesting uh, phenomenon because uh, around 1920s, uh, Korean Buddhists, they were really feeling a sense of crisis. Korea was under control of the Japanese colonial government, and Japanese Buddhism came to Korea and trying to use uh, Buddhism as a part of a colonial policy, and also Japanese Buddhism trying to uh, propagate in Korea to make uh, uh, the people practice Japanese Buddhism. On the other hand, Christianity was getting uh, bigger and bigger. So Korean Buddhists, they, they felt real sense of crisis, and they there are starting from 1920s up to late 1930s, they published a series of uh, articles that demand the renovation. Uh, rejuvenization, reformation of Korean Buddhism. So, well, I haven't found anything that Kim Il-up have act- has actually read these articles, but the interesting part mm-hmm. is that because of this demand for renovation, reformation of Buddhism, that uh, like a lay Buddhist like Kim Il-up, who didn't have any monastic connection, was able to practice Zen meditation, right? In other words, in Seoul, there were Zen centers where just anybody could go and practice meditation. So that was an interesting kind of situation. Uh, And then, but still, the Pigunis or Buddhist nuns are obviously minorities in the uh, Buddhist community, not in terms of number, but in terms of privilege. Uh, when Kim Il-up uh, joined the monastery in 1933, there were actually not many places where nuns could practice meditation. Right? It was about the time, 1930s, that the first uh, uh, Buddhist nuns monastery, Buddhist nuns meditation hall, began to appear in Korea. 
So Kyonsong Am was the name of a place where Kim Il-up eventually settled down, medita- uh, practiced meditation, which is located in the Sudong Monastery, southern part of Korea. That was the first Jan meditation hall opened for Buddhist nuns. Meditation hall is not co-ed, right? So, uh, so this is very important as well. So Gimit uh, was the first generation of Korean Buddhist nuns who uh, were able to meditate in the Buddhist, uh, Buddhist meditation hall uh, opened for the Buddhist nuns. Um, basically, these Buddhist nuns uh, lead a life very uh, kind of uh, disciplined life, so, uh, getting up early in the morning and do the meditation and do a lot of chores uh, to maintain the meditation hall and then things like that. So uh, they, especially in 1920s, 30s, it was all very difficult time for everybody in Korea. So uh, Kim Il-up, if you read Kim Il-up's works, you see a lot of many places where Kim Il-up says that uh, you should not waste and even a kind of a piece of rice and things like that. So they had a difficult time physically, but a lot of women uh, joined the monastery and for various different reasons. But one of the main reasons, I think, for women joined the monastery uh, at that time and sometime up to the late 20th century was to get education. Because in Korea, women's life was mainly being a mother and wife. And a lot of women wanted to go beyond that. And one way of uh, leading a life beyond the householder's life is to join the monastery and get educated. You mentioned how, if we were to put it simply, in the phase of her life where she was writing and active as a feminist, she was... targeting kind of the external patriarchal systems of oppression toward her. But when she transitioned to the monastery, it was, she began to look inward in her search for liberation. Can we talk a little bit about her philosophy as a Buddhist and perhaps some of her major works, such as Reflections of a Zen Buddhist Nun? Uh, Sure. So, yes, as a a feminist activist, she wanted to change social norms and society's way of treating women. But once she joined the monastery, obviously she used Buddhist philosophy to develop the idea of liberation of women. So let me start with her idea of this kind of self. So one of the major issues for women to deal with, especially in a patriarchal society, patriarchal society is that, well, women's, women, do, women do not have a self because women's self was given, imposed by patriarchal, patriarchal society as a woman. A woman do not have usually clear identity as an individual. Now, Gimiriyab used the Buddhist idea of no self to challenge this uh, the invisibility of women in a patriarchal society. As you know that in Buddhism, nothing has any permanent, unchanging, independent essence. So 
when we think about myself, then we have to ask, what do I mean by myself? Right? What do I have to call something as my own? And Buddhist teaching is that, well, if you really think about that, you will eventually come to a conclusion that there is no essence that permanently, independently exists in you. And this is the idea of no self. So obviously, no self does not mean that we do not exist. No self simply means that there is no permanent independent essence in an individual. We exist because we are indebted to all the different things in the world. I need uh, to breathe, and uh, in order to breathe, I need an oxygen. I need a space to place my physical body. I need uh, uh, nutrition to eat so then I can maintain my physical body and so on and so forth. All these different things combined together makes myself. And this idea of no self is the idea that we should have a sense of self which is not closed, but which is open. Uh, myself is just individual. That is true. I am different from other people, other things, so I am an independent individual. But that individual identity is only provisional because that identity is possible because of all the other things that make a contribution to my own existence. Kimiria applied this idea to women's sense of self. She says that, well, the self we usually understand as ourself, for example, women. That's only provisional self, which Kimiria calls small self. But if we think about how we exist, what makes my existence possible, then we realize that what is called the self is really bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it, when, when we understand that openness of ourself, we realize that we are not confined by this imposed sense of self that closed self, right? This open sense of self, Gimirab calls big self. So here you see that how Gimirab utilized the Buddhist philosophy of no self to liberate women from this closed concept of women being a kind of minor, minority position in a patriarchal society. It's not only, uh, only women who has this small self. If you are just attached to your own self and close yourself to other people, other things in the world, you get stuck in the world of small self. But from Buddhist perspective, if you realize that interconnectedness of all things, then you begin to open up yourself, and that is the world of big self. And this big self is a very, plays a very important role for women, for Kimiryup to overcome the gendered self, which she tried to uh, liberate as a feminist activist in her pre-monastic life. And this idea of a big self is also very much connected to Kimiryup's other very interesting uh, interpretation of Buddhist philosophy. One of the major concepts that Gimiriyab uses to explain Buddhist uh, uh, teaching is the idea of creativity. Obviously, Gimiriyab was a writer, so she's very sensitive to the idea of creativity. But she moves even farther from that uh, idea of artistic creativity. The creativity for Gimiriyab 
each is the expression of our existence when we live in a state of freedom. Think about this. When we talk about creativity, we usually talk about artists. And why is that the case? Because artists produce their work of art when, only when they are free. This freedom does not necessarily mean the physical freedom. Even though you are confined in a small room, if your mind is free, then you can create a, a lot of different things going beyond this small confinement of your room. That is Wikimedia's understanding of Buddhism. And when this creativity of an individual becomes really visible, tangible reality, that becomes culture. So, for example, nice work of art or monument can be culture. But Kimida says that not only those uh, tangible work of art, but our mental state also can be called, called a culture. So interestingly, Kimida says that the Buddha is the great person of culture. And she joined the monastery because she wanted to study under the great person of culture. So this is a very interesting way of defining the nature of Buddhism and the nature of what is represented by the Buddha. So in all this, uh, Kim Yop's idea, right? Uh, Thank you. Pixel, and she developed and, these. Right, right, exactly. I So far, I haven't found any uh, Buddhist scholar who used this expression, creativity, or even uh, culture, to describe Buddhism. Yeah, it's a very unique interpretation of Buddhist philosophy. Something else that she emphasized, according to your work, is lived experience. Can you say a little bit about that in contrast to Western continental philosophy? Uh, sure. So this is uh, really the one of the big frame of my book. So as I said, especially in the introduction and the conclusion chapter, chapter seven, <clears throat> this book has several layers of frame. <clears throat> Excuse me. So at the core, that I use the life and philosophy of Gimidab as a case study. But from there, I used her to talk about the gender issue. But at the same time, going further, I'd like to talk about the women's philosophy. And then, moving further, I'd like to talk about the Buddhist philosophy. An even bigger frame is to think about women's philosophy, Buddhist philosophy, Asian philosophy versus Western philosophy. And for a long time, even nowadays, when you say uh, philosophy, the Western philosophy becomes a default philosophy. The educational system is the same whether in the, in, in the West or in, in Asia, that we still think that the Western philosophy is a default philosophy. In order to refer to Asian philosophy, you have to say Asian philosophy. So... Now, there are different, perhaps there are differences between Western philosophy and Asian philosophy on the one hand, and also women's philosophy and men's philosophy. Obviously, I'm risking a generalization here, but still, 
Philosophy is a discipline which is the most, one of the most male-dominated uh, discipline in humanities. There are less than 20% faculty members in full, uh, full professorship in philosophy as a woman. So one thing that I characterized Kimi of the philosophy is so what is called lived life, lived expression. In other words, when people think about philosophy, people tend to think that philosophy is about ideas. We talk about ideas, and by doing that, we discover universal truths, which should be applicable wherever, whenever. Now, I don't think that is really correct description of what philosophy does. Philosophy is basically about life, and we experience life in a various different formats. And depending on your situation, your culture, you experience life differently. And the philosophy should come out of our daily experiences. Nobody just have a set ideas and apply that in their daily life. And our daily life has various different components in it. Out of that daily life, experiences in daily life, we began to create a meaning for our existence. So that's what I meant by lived experience. So that's one of the reasons also I kind of wrote this book in this way. From the chapter one, I traced down Gimidop's life from the very beginning and the chapter six until her death. And I'd like to let her speak for herself instead of me talking about her life. And as we kind of traced down the evolution of her life, we began to understand why Gimidop did something she did at that time. When you take this situation or event out of the context, and people evaluate that, whether that was right, that was wrong, that was good, that was evil. But I think that that was not a way that we should understand life. So we should think about trying to understand the life of an individual before we judge them. So lived experience means that the people's life and are trying to see that how people live the life and out of which we create our own, our own philosophy instead of starting from the fixed uh, the ideas in a vacuum state. And I think both the Buddhist philosophy and the women's philosophy tend to focus more on the lived experience than just ideas. What do you think the larger impact of Kim Iryup's philosophy has been on feminism in East Asia or South Korea in general? Well, that is a good question. In fact, there is an, uh, so here is the situation. As you know now, Gimidia was a writer, feminist activist, and she joined the monastery. Now, until very recently, there was no research on Gimidia's Buddhism before I did work on her. So all the scholarship that existed before, I mean, in Korea, not to mention in English. Mine was the, one of the first. There was one more article in English before mine uh, appears. 
So that was it in English-speaking world. But even in Korea, the older uh, scholarship on Kim Il-dae was first from the uh, literature person about Kim Il-dae's uh, uh, essays, short stories, and that's one scholarship. And a little bit about Kim Il-dae as a new woman. But then new woman phenomena was uh, uh, just emerged in the 1920s, but by 1930s, it already almost died out because of a conservative uh, society. And then new women scholarship did not appear until 19, late 1990s. So during this period, well, people didn't talk about the new women. Not only people didn't talk about new women, new women were stigmatized as uh, somebody, uh, unruly uh, women. Who, demand, who were demanding for sexual freedom. And even, even 21st century, when uh, I was engaged with translation of Kim Il-dae's book, the response from Korea was that, well, why should we translate uh, this woman's uh, story? It has nothing to do with the Korean Buddhism. And that was a reaction. Uh, but I think slowly, slowly, uh, there emerged the reaction to Kim Il-dae's life. And there are kind of two interesting situations. In the English-speaking world, American Academia, I think after I published Kim Il-dae's uh, book, I heard from a number of my colleagues that they uh, they are using this book for their classes. I've been doing that too. as a case of women's story, women's philosophy, women's Buddhism, gender, uh, women and Buddhism kind of issues. And I, I've been uh, giving a talk on Kim almost to kind of globally in, in Europe, in Asia, in South Asia, in Nepal. And I've been always, it's been always very well received. So I think that hopefully uh, Kim Il-dae's life and her philosophy will have a continuing influence on, uh, on scholarship and on women. In Korea, it's still early. Uh, the people are still uh, not too much, uh, not not too much investing in the women's work, especially Bigwini Buddhist nun, Buddhist nun and philosophy. They are not too much intrigued yet. I that's too bad. I hope that the situation changes. But there was an interesting situation when the uh, translation was published in English here in the United States. Some of my Korean uh, friends uh, here in Washington, D.C. Uh, gave a book party. It was a kind of private, book, small book party, but they posted it on a newspaper announcement. So Kim Il-dae's book was pub- uh, translated into English, so we will host a small book party. At the actual book party, there was uh, one very old lady who showed up. Nobody, the organizer, nobody knew who she was. And later in the party, we asked her, so uh, how did you learn about this, uh, this event? And she said, well, I read this uh, announcement on the newspaper that Kim Il-dae's work was translated into English. And I thought that I should, I should come. And uh, her daughter drove her to the party. And her daughter says that my mother didn't even read English. But she said she should come to this party because Kim il was a heroine for the women in her generation. In other words, 1960s, 70s, 80s, Korean women who lived a life under the patriarchal society, they thought that Kim Il-dae was somebody who lived a life the way that she wanted to do, a free life. 
even though she had to pay a high price. So in a way that Jimmy Rupp's life itself had a kind of influence on general public and many Korean women. But in terms of Korean Buddhist scholarship, uh, it's still a long way to go. But in the U.S., I think that uh, it's been the reaction has been very positive, and I hope that it will have a uh, continuing impact on our scholarship on women and Buddhism. That's great to hear. That that was a wonderful story. What do you think the legacy of Kim Iryup is as a Zen master? Uh, can you tell us about perhaps her home monastery and? what her students are doing today? Mm, uh, right. So I've been visiting that place, Kyansongan, several times, number of times, and especially I, uh, I continuously con- uh, communicating with one of her, um, in the lineage, one of her granddaughter disciple. In other words, mm-hmm. uh, there was a Wersong Sinim, uh, the Master Wersong was the Gimidup's disciple who uh, took care of Gimidup at the last stage until her death. And then I interviewed that, that uh, nun. And also the next generation, a younger disciple, Kyungwan uh, Sinim, the Venerable Kyungwan, I've been communicating with her constantly. And they Still follow Gimirup's footsteps. Obviously, the there were less and le- there are less and less people who joined the monastery. But I think the legacy of Gimirup in uh, the Buddhist community, especially for the Buddhist nuns, was really still strong. They they are aware that there was a female Buddhist nun who lead this kind of life and then who really turned Buddhism uh, into a very uh, understandable way to inform women's life. So uh, the general trend is that there were, as I said, uh, there were less people who joined the monastery. So the Kyunsongam, where Kimida practiced, uh, had only like a very small number of Buddhist nuns. But they were still kind of continuing Gimriap's legacy. They created something, certain kind of organization, which does some kind of activities like organizing a conference and giving a scholarship and things like that. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a good legacy. I see. Well, we've taken a lot of your time, Jean. And your book has so much more to covey. Cover. It's a chronological study of Yiryap's life, and in every chapter, you reference many different thinkers from East Asian and Western traditions, as well as uh, Buddhist philosophical positions. I wish we had time to talk about it all in detail today. But uh, that gives the listeners a chance to take your book and find mm-hmm. out for themselves about Kim Yup and your very masterful scholarship. But before we go, I was wondering if you could share with us about any current projects you're working on. 
Do you have any forthcoming works that our audience can look forward to? Oh, sure. So uh, currently I'm working on two book projects. Um, so the first book project is tentatively titled Derrida Buddhism and Ethical Imagination. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, Derrida's philosophy and Buddhism had a lot of similarities, and then I had an interest in these uh, comparative philosophy for almost 30 years now, but I haven't written a monograph on, on this topic. I edited one volume on this topic uh, titled The Buddhisms and Deconstructions, which came out 2008, I believe, or six. So now I'm finally, I'm working on a book about this comparative philosophy, and I focus on uh, on the ethics. Uh, one of the reasons being that both Buddhism and Derrida deconstruction have been criticized for lacking a clear blueprint of ethics. And I think this is total bias of those who are at the central position of ethics. So uh, the ethical theory has been dominated in the West by normative ethics, meaning that they claim that the goal of ethics is to offer norms. But as you can say, that Buddhism says that things are always already connected. So that uh, gives many people certain kind of doubt about the possibility of thinking about Buddhist ethics. But that's total nonsense, I said. Just to, just to think about this, Buddhism is a philosophical religious tradition which has 2,500 years uh, History. How can a, the, such a kind of tradition not have ethics, right? So I'd like to think about uh, the ethical paradigms that we can draw from Derrida deconstruction and Buddhism. And I claim that this ethical paradigm is really very much viable in our time, especially when we say that this is a globalized world in which we appreciate diversity and different cultures, different ideas. And in that kind of situation, what kind of ethics do we need? And I offer one way of looking for ethics is to see this Derridean deconstruction and Buddhism. So, well, I'm not going to get into details, but basically I outline the similar worldview of Derrida's deconstruction and Buddhism. And then I show that the Derrida's deconstruction from there moves on to uh, political social dimensions and Buddhism offer certain kind of a cultivation uh, of individuals. So putting them together, we can create a, a very viable ethical paradigm. And that is one book. And my another book, uh, the other book project is about uh, modern Korean philosophy, which is tentatively titled Logic and Politics in Modern Korean Philosophy. And logic is one of the elements that the Western philosophers claim that East does not, does not have a philosophy. Western logic, which is basic Western logic, is based on Aristotelian logic, logic of identity. And Asian philosophy usually say that relational identity. So from Western perspective, well, relational identity is not identity because you're messing up different things. And if you mess up things, different different things, you cannot do, do, do philosophy, right? Because that's not rational. But I claim that, well, 
Buddhist logic has its own logicality. Right? There's a different logic. And by putting logic, uh, Asian logic, uh, against Western logic, I'm also connecting it to politics. This is a very interesting part from, uh, from my view because one of the uh, modern Korean philosophers named Park Chiu used this uh, Western logic and its limitation as a cause for the problem that we are facing in contemporary society. Right? When we say everybody's equal, in reality, this everybody doesn't mean everybody. Right? Everybody has, means only those who are at the center, those who have power. And the Korean thinker says that why does this ha- why does this happen? Because you have a logical fallacy of but based on logic of identity. So obviously there are a lot of things going on. But anyways, I think that this uh this will be again another book focusing on one figure, Park Chiu, thinker. But, but then by with uh, by doing that, uh placing Western philosophy and Western logic and politics. Uh, against Asian mode of thinking, Korean mode of thinking, which uh, is based on Buddhism. Interesting part, one of the interesting parts of this project is that Park Chiu never studied Buddhism, as far as I know. He studied all the Western philosophy. But then the logic he develops here is exactly Buddhist logic. So you see that how Asian mind functions here, and that gives us a, a room to play with logic and politics uh, using um, examining uh, Korean thinker and then comparing with Western logic and politics. Well, that sounds very fascinating. And I look forward to those contributions to both fields of Korean study and philosophy. And hopefully you'll be willing to come back on the New Books Network and talk about those in the future. Sure, that will be my pleasure. That'd be great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing with the audience today about Kim Ilyup. She truly was a fascinating figure, and our show, our listeners will be delighted to listen to this episode. Thank you.